uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you for all the people that's listening and chiming in. You didn't have to do it, but you did it anyway. So I appreciate you doing that. Hopefully that way, if we can learn how to agree to disagree, and we can live like people. When I make the hard topics, I say the hard things, I make the thing itch scratch. So if your itch is not scratching, and you're scratching on the itch, maybe you need to look yourself in the mirror. So I'm not here for no drama. I'm not here for no nothing. Just to learn, 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 and edify. This is from learning situations only. So I'm not here to get anybody's hairs up. So, again, thank you. And hopefully we can agree to disagree. Won't you stand? Won't you stand by me? I just need a little more time. I just need a little more time with you. I just need a little Okay, Darlene, good to see you. Want to reset us and start us off again? Sure, good to see you too. Um, for the first time in the U.S., there are wind turbines that have sent electricity uh, to the grid. That there's a wind farm off the coast of Massachusetts. Um, it delivered some power just before midnight on Wednesday. It's a project the Biden administration had signed off on, and I was just wondering if you know the president supports this kind of energy. Um, is he aware? Um, any reaction that you can share? So I don't have a reaction for you at this time. Uh, I would have to get back to the team, and I have certainly have not spoken to the president about this particular uh, issue. As you just stated, that is something that we are, uh, when it comes to wind turbines, you've seen the president visit uh, many of um, manufacturing uh, factories where they uh, are certainly leading with that and manufacturing those wind turbines. So certainly that is part of our uh, climate change, certainly an initiative, clean energy. Uh, so that's certainly something that we have been very much backing and supporting, but that particular issue I, I have not touched base with the president about. And then two other quick ones. Uh, will the president have a public schedule tomorrow or Friday? Uh, I don't have anything at this at this time for you. As you know, he will be uh, traveling on Saturday uh, for January 6th uh, to Pennsylvania. That is something that the campaign uh, is putting together. So if you have any specific details, we we'll certainly uh, 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 make sure that you reach out to them. I uh, just don't have anything else on his schedule for the next day or two. And is there a list of the scholars and historians that the press office said he had lunch with today so in the lead-up to the January 6th? I don't have a list to share at this time for, for folks who are not tracking this afternoon. Afternoon, the president met uh, or had lunch with a group of scholars and historians to discuss ongoing threats uh, to our democracy, whether here or, or and also abroad. Uh, this is something that he tends to uh, to do, uh, especially as we head in, uh, head towards a you know uh, an important day like January 6. So it's something that he, it is commonly done. He's done it. He's met with a diverse group of historians before. I don't have a list to provide to you uh, at this time. Uh, thanks, Marie. Um, 
on the, the scholars and historians meeting, um, <coughs> that statement referenced threats to democratic institutions in the country. Does the president think that there are any specific policy changes that are needed to strengthen institutions ahead of the elections? I don't have any policies uh, to announce or preview for you at this time. Look, the president has always been clear. I've been clear from this podium as well. Uh, what happened on Jan January 6th was unprecedented, uh, an attack on our core principles, an attack on our democracy, what we saw. Uh, was an attack on our rule of law, attack on our constitution. We saw the Confederate flag uh, in in the middle of the Capitol building. Uh, it is it was a, a terrifying and horrific day, uh, and um, a you know a, a dark day in our history, sadly. But I just don't have as far as policy wise and our uh, strengthening our institutions. Don't have anything to share at this but time. Specifically, does he think the United States is ready to have free and fair elections in November? Well, it's. We have to. I mean, that is what we need. We have to. That's what the president believes in, right? If he believes in having a democracy that works, on having a free and fair election. That's something that he has spoken to, uh, obviously. Uh, but I don't, as far as our policies for our institutions, uh, announcing any new policy, I don't have anything just announced at, the, at this time. But clearly, that is something that uh, the different agencies who are involved are certainly making sure that we, we get to a place that we're, we're you know, we're, we're Americans are able to to vote freely on in November. And do you have any reaction to the new data out of Treasury that the national debt has hit a record thirty-four trillion dollars? So yeah, um, if you look at uh, if you look at that data, uh, it's a trickle. There's a trickle down debt. If you think about it, uh, Republican tax cuts are responsible for about ninety percent of it, uh, of the increase in the debt as a share of the economy over the last two decades, uh, excluding emergency spending. And so, as we know, you've heard me say this. You've heard the president speak to this of what he has done to certainly lower uh, lower the debt. He signed a legislation to lower uh, the deficit by $1 trillion, right? When you think about the inf in Inflation Reduction Act, that's going to lower prescription uh, drug costs and cracking down on the wealth uh, on the wealth tax uh, cheats that we've seen. And then his agenda would cut the deficit another $2.5 trillion by making the wealthy pay their fair share. So that is what the president has done. What we've seen on the other side is the complete opposite. Uh, what they've tried to do is continue to give a tax break to the millionaires and the billionaires. And that, what they have actually uh, put forward, would add uh, more than $3 trillion uh, to the debt. So that's what uh, that data shows us, and that's what we have done to try to make sure the president has been very, very deliberate about this, to make sure that he do everything we can uh, to uh, certainly deal with the with the debt. Get him, Jen. Thanks, Green. Um, has the president been briefed on the imam who was shot and wounded outside of a New Jersey mosque this morning? Obviously, there's serious concern about um, this having been an act that was driven by Islamophobia. I just wonder what the White House so we certainly were aware uh, of the shooting of the imam outside of the New Jersey mosque, as you just laid out, and certainly we're praying for his speedy recovery. Uh, local law enforcement are all hands on deck, obviously, and is investigating, and, uh, and we hope that they're able to uh, complete their work soon. I, I don't have anything else. Uh, I, I would refer you to the FBI on any specifics, uh, and I have not spoken to the president, but obviously we are aware of it. Uh, and just given that this is the first briefing of the new calendar year, um, is there a way in which you could sum up sort of what the president's top priorities are as we head into a new year, um, particularly given that this is the last year of his first term? So look, you know, the way that we see the president's, even the f president's first three years, uh, he's done more in the first three years than, than presidents have done in the first two terms, or their first two terms. Now you hear, y'all hear her line right. She said, 
Biden did. What did Biden do for the people, y'all? No, what 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 Biden didn't do? He gave everything else to Ukraine and this and that. Job gas went up. What what did he do? And you hear how she doing this crafty council about all this little small line. You know, she caught up in a lie too. Caught up in this delusional state that in order for me to hold down this job, I got to do some crafty counseling. Selling people out. Now, what did Biden actually do, y'all? Talking about he did more than other people did in two terms. Who? And who is the other person? So you got to watch her too. She got that crafty council talking too. That's why I say y'all got to watch these people, how they talking and how this crafty council going on. Let's analyze. In their two terms of uh, their presidency. And that is, if you think about historic pieces of legislation, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's Ships and Science Act, whether uh, it is, uh, you know, is it the Inflation Reduction Act, as I just mentioned, which is historic in nature, as we talk about clean energy and lowering uh, prescription drugs. That is, uh, that is incredibly important. And what we need to do and what the president wants to focus on is implementing those, right? Continuing to implement those really key, important legislation. That's what you're going to see the president do. Uh, Last year in his State of the Union, you heard the president speak to uh, finishing the job. Uh, and uh, and so that is something that he wants to continue to do, right? Whether it's making sure we have veterans, uh, making sure that unity agenda that he talked about, making sure that we're focusing on our veterans, focusing on getting fentanyl off the street, focusing on how do we deal with cancer. Those are the things that the president's going to continue to talk about. And uh, and one of the very important things in the Inflation Reduction Act is that thir- is that insulin cap at 35 bucks. See, all this, what he talking about, is folly. He ain't talking about how he going to build the job economy. He ain't talking about how we go, he going to take the country to the next level of the, the next century. All he talking about old folks stuff, Medicaid, Medicare, and all this other stuff. And y'all get caught up in this, this, this illusional talking that she talking about. But if what she talking about that Biden said he going to do, does that hold weight? Let's analyze. It's for adults. He wants to make that make sure that happens for all Americans. So there's a lot to work on. Uh, we saw the data coming out of uh, out of 2023 on the economy and where the economy is, is headed and how Bidenomics, uh, we believe, is working because of that data. And so there's still a lot of work to do. Uh, and that's what you're going to see from this president. This is heavily on influence. He said all that data. Biden gave them people billions and billions of dollars. Then he go over here and give these other people billions of dollars. And what data, and we're in a recession, right? And they giving money out, and then they didn't even do the budget. What data do they have? The Crafty Council keep telling y'all the earth is given to the hands of the wicked. And what do the wicked people do? They put you in a delusional state. Let's analyze. 
Sean, as opposed to, you know, there being other pieces of legislation that the White House is hopeful. I mean, look, I think when I talk, when he talks about the unity agenda, there's more things to be done, right? There's more work to be done uh, that continues on the historic, uh, I think, the historic first term that the president has had. So certainly there are more things to be done. But implementing those those historic pieces of legislation is important as well. Uh, Secretary Mayorkas has obviously been up on the Hill negotiating this deal, trying to, to hammer out uh, something on the border, but at the same time the House is, is formally beginning impeachment proceedings against him. Do you have any concern that this will complicate a deal? It could hurt negotiations, especially as we're up against a clock here. So, I, you know, I, I kind of addressed this at the top, how baseless it is and how they're wasting their time uh, on, uh, on impeachment proceedings that make no sense. And that's not what the American people want them to focus on. And that's certainly, we see that from House Republicans, obviously, and it's a political stunt. It's baseless. It's purely baseless. And instead of coming together to deal with potentially what's going to happen on January 19th, a shutdown, instead of dealing with that and really keeping to their word of that bipartisan agreement that the president did and made uh, back in 2023 and keeping that deal, two-thirds of House Republicans voted for that. We saw bipartisan support in the Senate. And what they're doing is they're, they're not doing their job. They're focusing on something that Americans do not want to see. They want us to deliver on things that matter to them. But regardless of that, are you concerned yeah. that the fact that they are taking this action, even if you disagree with it, that it's going to make this more difficult? I it's going to complicate We all think this. it's baseless, and we think it's a waste of time, and we think it's not the that not the focus that they should have. That's not the focus that Americans want them to have. And so, look, we have. I mean, we were able to come together, when you think about the budget, when you think about where we're headed potentially on, on the 19th, to come with a bipartisan agreement to keep the government open. That was done in a bipartisan way. Two-thirds of House Republicans voted for that. So we could get this done. They agreed on it. They agreed on it. But yet they want to focus on something that is not, that is not going to keep the government open, that's for sure. Okay, we jump. Um, last night the President said that he needed more money to protect the U.S. southern border. Give me the money. Does he think it's a lack of money, a lack of funding that has led to the current situation at the border? I mean, look, it's certainly a, a we're asking, there's a reason, let me step back for a second. If you look at the national security supplemental that the president put forward, he put border security in there, right? Because he believes in order to get the work done at the border, we need more resources. DHS needs more resources. Our border patrol agents need more resources. We need more immigration uh, judges. We need more resources to get this done. We need the technology at the border to deal with the, what's going on uh, with migrants at the border. And, and you know, and you see they talking about money like this for the border. We got people homeless, hungry, need medicine. And they continue to splurge money out there. If they were so serious about having money at the border, why they getting give why when they were giving my man all that money in Ukraine, why they didn't think about that? And they still giving out money. And that's supposed to be the money that we work hard at. We get up at from working 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 hours a day to get. And they just free to give it to anybody. Like we ain't nothing. Mm, mm, mm. 
You know, last May, the Speaker and Republican, the Republicans in the House, they voted to get rid of 2,000, 2,000 Border Patrol agents. I mean, that's their focus. So, of course, that's not helpful. That, so we need the resources to actually do the work, and they keep getting in the way. House Republicans keep getting in the way of doing the work to deal with what we're seeing at the border. So they're obstructing. House Republicans are obstructing. That's what they're doing right now. But does the president believe it's just a money issue, or does he think that the policies have to change? Well, I would remind you, Weijia, on the first day of his administration, he put forth a comprehensive immigration uh, policy, uh, legislation, and he presented that to Congress. And he did that because he understands that the immigration process or the system has been broken for decades, for decades. So obviously, we need to change policy and work on policy to deal with a broken system. So it's both. It is, And that's what you've been seeing from the Senate side. Both Republicans and Democrats have been talking and negotiating for the past couple of weeks on how to deal with the border situation, border security. And it's been a policy conversation and a funding uh, conversation. So it's both. And does he have any New Year's resolutions? <laughs> I don't have the president's New Year's resolution. I think uh, what I will say uh, uh, is that the president wants to continue doing the job uh, that he uh, that he has said that he's going to do on behalf of the American people. Uh, that's what we've seen him do the last three years. I've talked about the historic piece of legislation that's actually going to deal with health care, going to deal with veterans' health, right? going to deal with clean energy and climate change, uh, going to deal with key issues that matter to the American people, binomics, making sure that the economy works for all, we're building the middle class. Those of the things that the president's going to focus on. Go ahead, Justin. Two quick ones. The first, um, after the plane crash in Japan, uh, I'm wondering both has the administration offered uh, any support or, or is it working on the investigation of the crash and has it prompted any review, especially of certain so, safety procedures? Let me just first say, Justin, our hearts go out to the families uh, of the Japanese service members who lost their lives in this terrible accident. Uh, so we're glad that the passengers and all, obviously the crew members were able to get out uh, the, uh, in the, on the commercial flight, was able to get out safely. That is incredibly important. Any specifics on any questions about investigations, that was something for the, uh, the government of, J of Japan to, to speak to. The resignation yesterday of Harvard's president seemed to generate a lot of conversation. Um, I know the president, or you, weighed in uh, after uh, her testimony on Capitol Hill and wondering if you have a reaction. So, look, you know, um, uh, I know there's uh, been a lot of coverage of this, and so uh, I want to be very mindful and careful, and I've said this before, when it comes to either private institutions or colleges and universities, uh, we're not going to comment. We're not going to comment on any personal decision uh, that's been made. Uh, and I want to, uh, you know, as you asked, because you asked me, uh, um, our comments from here and what we were, what we said from here, we believe that uh, that uh, this is a moment for uh, leaders to have moral clarity. That we believe that is incredibly important at this time to have moral clarity. And uh, and you know, you know, look, um, any calls for genocide are are monstrous and they're antithetical. Uh, there should not be a place uh, for that in this country. And we're always going to call out hate, and we're always going to be very, very clear about that. And I will add uh, that you heard the university presidents who testified uh, also apologize, right? See, they always talking about splurred out or hate and stuff. See, you heard that she had to get her thoughts together. They must be telling her something or whatever. That's why I'm looking real hard. And um, they talking about hate. Now, now let me ask you something, fam. How can the non-pigmentation man 
and the non-melanated woman even part their lips off talking about hate. And they the author of hate. They're the inventor of hate. This type of hate that they did to my forefathers. So how can somebody even, you see how they spin it? I want y'all young fellas to see how they be spinning stuff so y'all can catch it. Because these are the crafty counsel and the crafty words that they use to try to spin a lot of stuff. So we got to use and check out their word flow. Because you get caught up in them languages and you don't know the flow of these words that they saying. And you heard them say this. I'll, I'll quote uh, what President Gay said. She said, I'm sorry, uh, words matter. I'll quote what President McGill say. I was not focused on, but I should have been, the irrefutable fact that a call for genocide of Jewish people is a call for some of the most terrible violence human beings can perpetrate. So we believe it's a time to stand up and have and show leadership, and we believe that's what we did at that time. Okay. Thanks, <clears throat> On the border negotiations, um, can you comment on the concerns raised by some of the Hispanic caucus members and other elected Latino uh, leaders who feel they've been kind of cut out of these talks? So look, um, uh, we've been in touch uh, with uh, um, uh, Democrats, uh, obviously members of the uh, Hispanic um, uh, leadership, and we've done that as these conversations have been going. We're not going to speak to certainly private conversations. But I'll say this, the president believes that we need to have a bipartisan agreement. That's where he believes, on both funding and also policy. And that's what you've seen from Democrats and Republicans on the Senate side. And that's what they've been doing. They've been, they've been having those conversations during the holiday season and, uh, and, and throughout this week as well. And so we... Funding and policies. Funding and policy and y'all got to realize this family policy is not law they put these policies out here to continue putting them out here to oppress us and then if we continue going through their policy then they just keep making more policies so what type of policies they trying to, to put out there and we don't even know most of y'all out here that vote now, there's a lot of people out here voting and they ain't eating up on what they, the people are doing. Y'all vote because somebody else tell y'all to vote. Y'all don't see their policy, their mindset, what type of person they are, nothing. And this is what we get for y'all just to go out here guessing or somebody who make you feel good with some smooth talking. And y'all ain't even worried about the future of your children. Why have them if you ain't worried about uh, maintain the good future for them in this world. I believe those conversations are headed in the right direction. Uh, and so, again, I said this moments ago, our, the president believes our immigration system is broken. That's why he put forth a legislation to deal uh, with the comprehensive, a comprehensive uh, legislation to deal with the immigration system. And so now we're having a conversation, a bipartisan conversation about how to move forward. We're going to continue certainly to hear from the leaders, obviously, and to hear what they have to say. And we've been in touch with them. We've had conversations with them, I'm not going to go into private conversations. And, you know, it's being hammered out. I don't want to get into specifics from here, what the policies are going to look like, what's in or what's out. We think it's heading in the right direction, and it isn't. So why do the American people 
want to know what the policy is about. See, they don't want to sit here and do some crafty counsel. But they're supposed to be working for us. And we working for them. And we doing what master tell us. That's why I be telling the common man and common woman. How they, how they presented the world to us and we fell to us whole. But, you know, we was already in the hole as black men and black women anyway because we were stolen property. And we, and all we knew was this system. But now, you know, this system is nothing but a host, a folly, and a get over. Important to have these conversations. The concerns that they've raised, they, they say the, the discussions is leading the Biden administration into a trap. You know, asylum discussions that making it harder to migrate legally will only increase irregular migration. Have you heard that from them specifically? And so, so look, I've seen the reporting just like you have. Obviously, the team here has had conversations uh, with leaders. Here's 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 the situation, right? The situation is that this system, this immigration system, has been broken for decades. And we need to have a bipartisan agreement to move forward on how to deal with the system. That's what we need to do, both on a policy front and a funding front. And so that's what you're seeing from the Senate side on both Republicans and Democrats. And it's been weeks of conversations and negotiation. And we think that is important. That's the only way we're going to be able to deal with this issue. And it's headed in the right direction. I'm not going to get into asylum. I'm not going to get into asylum policy. I'm not going to get into specifics. Uh, and uh, and so I'm just going to have to, to leave it there, obviously. Uh, go ahead, Michael. Thanks, Green. Um, a House committee is moving ahead with impeachment proceedings against Secretary Mayorkas. There's a hearing scheduled for next week. So I'd just like to get the White House response. And also, just to clarify, does, this, does the president still have confidence in the secretary? Absolutely. The president has confidence in the secretary, I think. And, and I've, I've said this moments ago. I said it at the top as well. We believe that um, what they're doing, the House Republicans are doing uh, with this impe- impeachment inquiry is baseless. Uh, we believe that uh, it's a political stunt. And, and we believe there's, not, there's no time for that right now. There are things that the American people want us to get done. And that's what they should focus on. Uh, and, uh, and you know, it is, it is unfortunate that this is where the House Republicans, that's the road that they want to go down uh, with this impeachment proceeding. That is really unfortunate when the American people have been very clear. They want us to see it. They want us to work in a bipartisan way to get things done. See, they always using that same record that what the American people want, what the American people want. American people don't even know what's going on. How the American people want. See, this is one of them political annex that she got going on. This is that smooth talk annex that you going on. Now, uh, she said the American people. I'm still trying to figure out who she talking about. This is what the American people want. This is what is it? This is what these leaders, these these families of leaders want. Because a whole lot of American people don't want what you want. Or don't see what you see. For them. And that's what the president wants to do. Go ahead, Karen. To back on the border negotiations. Um, has the president spoken to Secretary Mayorkas since he met with the bipartisan negotiators on the Hill yesterday? 
I, I don't get have. Refunds. I don't have. I, I would literally would have to check. I don't have any any uh, um, call with the, to read out. Uh, but um, obviously, the president speaks to his cabinet secretaries on a regular basis. Uh, but on on this particular meeting, I just don't. Ha I don't. I don't want to get ahead uh, ahead of of that. So I would have to check in. But. Uh, he speaks to them on a regular basis. Okay. Obviously, it's his cabinet. Um, and you've said you're not going to get into the details of what's being negotiated, but broadly, does the White House want to see Congress clear the supplemental before turning to the government funding issue for so, January 19th? As you, I mean, as you just laid out, Congress has a lot of work to do. They do. The supplemental, like... The reason that we put forward a supplemental, they are emergency requests that we believe are incredibly important and that needs to be dealt with on behalf of the American people. So obviously, those are important. Those are emergency requests that the president asked for. So critical, very critical to the American people. And, you know, their basic job for House, for the House, well, for Congress more broadly, is to keep the government open. That's their basic duty is to keep the government open. And all they're doing is dealing with a bipartisan agreement that the president made with Congress, right? It's something, again, I'm going to repeat myself here, something that two-thirds of House Republicans voted for, something that, that we saw come out of the Senate in a bipartisan posture. And so they have a lot to deal with. They have a lot to deal with, and they should just do their job. Okay. Um, does the president still have plans to visit the disaster site in East Palestine, Ohio? So I don't have any anything, uh, any schedule uh, of the president at this time, but I will say this, the president continues to oversee, as you know, and we've said it multiple times from here, it, it was a robust a recovery effort uh, to support the people of East uh, uh, Palestine, and we will visit when it is most helpful, the president will visit when it's most helpful to the community, and so we're going to continue to stay on the ground as long as possible remember because we had that robust operation while while ensuring that Norfolk uh, Southern is held accountable for the trauma they inflicted on this community uh, but in the meantime this is another thing I was just asked about Congress the supplemental and the budget this is another thing that we want Congress to act on it is important that they do their part to enhance rail safety that is something that Congress has to do and they have to do it by by by, uh, by passing a bi bipartisan uh, railway safety act that is something that they need to get to uh, but the president's going to continue to be there for the community uh, as he has been uh, for the past uh, past several months. And uh, Argentina has reported three foreign nationals, Syrian and uh, Lebanese, arrested uh, on suspicion of plotting a terror attack. Is that something the U.S. is monitoring? Does it raise concern levels here? I don't have anything for you at this time. Get it. Federal debt, I want to ask you about. So I heard you blame the Republicans for the federal debt, but President Biden has been in office for 35 months, and uh, over the past three months, the U.S. has added $10 billion per day to the federal debt. So, and that's not turning around. So, so is there a discussion here about cutting spending then? Republican tax cuts are, are responsible for 90%. 90% of the increase in the debt. 90%. That is something that Republicans are responsible for. What the president has done, what the president has done, and you've heard us talk about it, I just talked about this, he's put forth legislation like lowering the deficit uh, uh, by $1 trillion. And that's part of the lowering prescription uh, drug costs and cracking down on, on the wealthy uh, tax cheats. That's what he's done. You know, $1.5 trillion, uh, again, another way to lower the deficit, uh, and that is through wasteful spending on special interests like Big Pharma. The president beat Big Pharma. That's what he was able to do last year because of the policies that he has put forth. 
And meanwhile, yeah, you know what? The GOP, Congressional Republicans, what they want to do is they want to continue with their magonomics. What they've proposed will add $3 trillion to the debt. That's, that's the numbers. You're a data guy. That's the numbers. That's what we have seen. Wait, real quick, also on the, on the border, the vice president is in Los Angeles. I'm, I'm sorry, he went to Los Angeles to Las Vegas today, and the House Speaker is along the border. Does the president still have confidence that the vice president can get to the root causes of the migration to stop the flow? The, the president sees the vice president as a partner. She's a partner with him on all of the all of the successes that we have seen, what we've been able to do the first uh, the first term in this administration, uh, the first three years of this administration. I just listed out historic pieces of legislation that we've been able to get done, whether it's lowering prescription drugs, uh, whether it's dealing with veterans care, uh, whether it's dealing with climate change, uh, whether it's Bidenomics dealing with the economy. Uh, that is something that he has done in partnership with the vice president. So he has all confidence in her and will continue to do so. Uh, he has confidence in the in the vice president. I answered your question. Go ahead. Um, with the additional indictment of Senator Menendez, does the president think the senator should resign? That's up to him. That's a, that's a decision that he needs to make. And obviously, it's a serious matter. Uh, and he thinks it was the right thing that he stepped down as chairmanship. As and anything else to your question, that's something for the senator to decide Just on. Broadly, though, does the president trust the senator? And is, has the senator been cut off by the White House? Like, uh, I'm not, not going to get into any private discussions here at the White House, but that is something, as it relates to him resigning, that is something that the senator has to deal with. Go ahead. Uh, you mentioned the, the immigration proposal that the president put forward. This is the crafty counsel I keep on hearing us say. Private conversations. If they working for us, we should be knowing what all the conversation is. This is the crafty counsel. I, I ain't catch that, though. She's been saying that. Well, I ain't going to go into... But you, a public figure, you work for the people. Whatever the conversation should be, we should be knowing the conversation. But y'all go out here and believe them. Y'all go out here act like you're on fire for them. Y'all go out here and vote and still have no hope. But James 4 and 4 tell you something different. Let's analyze. A few times. Are there any pieces of it that the president is now pushing for in these border I'm talks? I'm not going to get into negotiations from here. Why is he not actively pushing for any parts of it? I, I didn't say he wasn't. I'm just saying I'm not negotiating from here. Thank you, Crane. Um, a couple weeks ago, you had said what we're seeing at the border isn't unusual, but in the month of December, there were more than 302,000 migrant encounters, uh, the highest total for a single month ever reported. So does the administration concede that what we're seeing now is unusual? What I said was, to be exact, is that what we're seeing at the U.S. is, is, uh, is, is ebbs and flows in how many migrants arrive at the border. It's something that happens every year. It ebbs and flows. Uh, and it's fueled by uh, efforts of smugglers to encourage irregular migration. And uh, I will add, since uh, since uh, May 12th, DHS has, has removed folks who have, been, uh, who have been here illegally, who were not here on a legal basis, about 460,000 people that they've been able to remove. That's what I said. Every year we see an ebbs and flow, and that's what we're seeing at this time, and which is caused by misinformation uh, from and disinformation from smugglers. Well, I reported that they only deported 142,000 in all of fiscal year 2023. Uh, December had more than double that crossing just a single month. So how is 
how is that really a me measurable consequence? Since May 12th, DHS has been able to remove and return over 460,000 individuals who, who did not have a legal basis to be here. That's what DHS has been able to do since May 12th. And I will remind you, uh, you know, that uh, just last week we had Homeland Security uh, Advisor Sher uh, Sherwood, Rand Sherwood Randall and Secretaries Biden Mayorkas meet with the Mexican government uh, just last week. And it was a productive conversation. And we believe that uh, the, the president of Mexico has taken significant enforcement actions and we are starting to see the results. And so a lot of this is diplomacy, right? A lot of it is having diplomacy. A lot of it is enforcement. Uh, I mean, you know, I just laid out how last May, while while DHS was removing, starting to remove folks who were here on a who were not here on a legal basis, you had House Republicans voting to get rid of 2,000, uh, you know, Border Patrol agents. That's what they were doing. So we're trying to deal with the issue, and we get it. It ebbs and flows every year. We get it. We understand what's happening at the border. That's why there's negotiations happening on the Senate side where Republicans and Democrats deal with this issue. Dealing dealing with the issue as the administration's also fighting to keep up, you know, to remove razor wire along the border that is intended to keep, you know, this surge lowered, um, to keep people out from crossing illegally. Governor Abbott's uh, razor wire does not prevent. It does not prevent non-citizens from unlawfully crossing. That's not what it does. If anything, it puts at risk, it puts the lives of the Border Patrol at risk. It puts them in danger. That's what the razor wire does. And that's what the Governor Abbott is doing. Again, a political stunt that does, doesn't actually fix the problem and puts Border Patrol agents. Fixing it right I, now? Well, I just I told, mean, but I mean. It's sure. a temporary solution, obviously. But when, I guess the reason that I'm but coming Jackie, to it from it this perspective puts, is because. It puts, the, it puts Border Patrol, uh, they, it puts them in a difficult position, right? I, I hear you. But when you're talking about the impeachment proceeding, for instance, as baseless, mm -hmm. and you have, you know, Democrats calling on the administration to do more. You had the mayor of Denver today uh, saying that Denver has become the highest city per capita for migrant recipients in the country. You've had mayors in New York and in Chicago begging for more federal help, saying that the administration is not answering them. And then you have Texas uh, saying that they've had to take measures into their own hands because the administration isn't enforcing existing laws on the books. The numbers keep going up. You have, you know, records being shattered every month. A population bigger than this, the size of Seattle coming in since October. And I understand where you're coming from, but in the meantime, when there's really not been any progress, and you always talk about how this has been an issue for decades, what is the administration doing right now to actually improve the crisis at the border? We have House Republicans that's literally blocking the president's effort to do something. That's what they're doing. They're playing political games. They're doing political stunts. Literally, House Republicans themselves voted to decrease the amount of Border Patrol agents by 2,000. They're getting in the way and they don't want to help. But we're, we are glad that we are working with Senate Republicans and Democrats in a bipartisan way to come up with a bipartisan agreement to deal with the border security. That's what we're seeing. Those negotiations have been going on. They're gonna, there's continuing this week. And we hope, we really do hope that we come to a place where we can talk about a, a, a bipartisan agreement where we can deal with the funding and the policy. And 
you know, House Republicans are getting in the way. That's what they want to focus on. That's where they see uh, they could be the most effective. And that's not what we believe. We, that's not what the American people want. Get Peter. Just to be clear, how does the razor wire put Border Patrol agents at risk? Kareem, the Biden administration themselves said that the agents have been cutting the wire to provide medical assistance to migrants or to apprehend migrants who have already crossed into U.S. Well, territory. let me be more clear. It makes it more difficult. It actually makes it more difficult uh, for uh, Border Patrol to apprehend those who, who do cross. So I'm going to be just clear that up so a little bit. It makes it just it makes it. Yeah, yeah, just, just to be sure more clear, right. it makes it does make it more difficult for them to do their jobs. Right. It does. Will it fly another go? All the wins ain't worth that loss. We've been down for way too long. Getting tired of holding on. I remember nights that I was dirty, far from being holy. Had to keep it on me, shot it, it broke. Had to keep my guard. Pour up some liquor for for the ones we lost. And I'm still grateful for all the time we got. Some of my niggas never really got that shot. I won't let them down. I make them proud the way I move. You know how I present everything I do Down and out, falling in The Middle East has been plagued by wars and instability for a long time, but the recent surge of violence between Israel and its neighbors has taken the situation to a new level of danger. Israel claims that it is acting in self-defense against the threats posed by these countries and their allies, who are hostile to its existence and security. But Russia has condemned Israel's actions openly. Also, some of Israel's actions during this war put Russia in a tight position and Russia is not happy about that. Russia has sent a strong message to Israel to stop its aggression and respect international law or face the consequences. How serious is Russia's message? What has Israel been doing that could involve Russia? And how does it affect Russia's interests and goals in the region? In this video, we will explore how Russia just gave Israel a serious warning and what it means for the future of the Middle East. Since the year 1948, Israel and Syria have been at war with each other. However, the conflict has escalated in the last few years because of the role of Iran and Russia in the Syrian civil war. The Syrian government and its allies, some of which are considered as terrorists by Israel and the US, receive support from Iran, which is a regional enemy of Israel. Israel sees Iran's activities and presence in Syria as a danger to its security and stability in the region and has carried out hundreds of airstrikes against Iranian targets in Syria since 2012. Israel has usually informed Russia before its military actions in Syria to prevent accidental clashes and deal with the complicated geopolitical situation in the region. Russia is a key ally of the Syrian government, and communication between Israel and Russia aims to avoid conflicts or misunderstandings between their forces. Russia also has a military presence and air defense systems in Syria, which could challenge Israel's air dominance and operational freedom. But now Israel has increased strikes against militias in Syria that are backed by Iran and have moved close to the Israeli border. These militias include Hezbollah, a Shiite group from Lebanon that fought a war with Israel in 2006, and the Fatemiyun Brigade, a Shiite group from Afghanistan that has been fighting with the Syrian army. Israel accuses these groups of smuggling weapons, building infrastructure, and planning for attacks against Israel from Syrian territory. According to the Interfax News Service, Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Mikhail Bogdanov said, 
As a general rule, Israel isn't informing Russia before its strikes in Syria. We find out after they happen. Israel has changed its policy and no longer always informs Russia, Syria's ally, before attacking Syrian territory. This change shows Israel's growing dissatisfaction with Russia's failure or reluctance to limit Iran's power and activities in Syria, as well as Israel's resolve to protect its interests and deter its enemies. And maybe Israel also thinks that by not telling Russia, it can surprise its targets more and reduce the risks of leaks or interference. The change is making the already bad relations between Israel and Russia worse. The two countries have had several diplomatic and military incidents in recent years, such as the shooting down of a Russian plane by Syrian air defenses during an Israeli attack in 2018, and the expulsion of a Russian diplomat by Israel in 2020 over spying accusations. The lack of coordination and trust between Israel and Russia could cause more confusion, mistakes, and escalation in the unstable region. And there's a risk of Syria becoming a new front in the Israel war in Gaza, a situation the U.S. and regional allies are trying to prevent as they try to control the conflict. Tensions are already high on Israel's border with Lebanon, Hezbollah's base, and from where it's firing at the Israeli military every day. Hezbollah has also warned to join the fight in Gaza and open a new front against Israel from Syria, where it has a large presence and influence. If that happens, Israel could face a multi-front war that would challenge its military abilities and political will. According to Geir Pedersen, the United Nations Special Envoy for the country, spillover into Syria is not just a risk, it has already begun. Fuel is being added to a tinderbox that was already beginning to ignite. This change has upset Russia, which sees it as a breach of the de-escalation agreement that the two countries made in 2015 and a threat to regional and global security. Russia has blamed Israel for putting Russian personnel and assets in Syria at risk and for weakening the diplomatic efforts to end the war in Syria. Russia has also shown concern about the humanitarian and environmental effects of Israel's strikes, especially in crowded areas. Russia has told Israel to respect Syria's sovereignty and stop attacking Syrian targets or face the consequences. The lack of coordination and trust between Israel and Russia could cause more tensions, mistakes and escalation in the unstable region. It could also affect the relations between Israel and the U.S., which are close allies and have a common position on Iran and its nuclear program. The U.S. has been trying to prevent a wider conflict in the Middle East and to bring back stability and peace in the area. The U.S. has also asked Israel and Hamas to end the fighting and resume talks. Russia may have reacted strongly to this change because it feels that Israel is ignoring its role and influence in Syria and challenging its interests and goals. Russia may also worry that Israel strikes could trigger a reaction from Iran and Hezbollah and escalate the violence in Syria and the region. Russia may also want to show its authority and credibility as a mediator and a power player in the Middle East. Also, this change could make the U.S. worried because it could make its relations with both Israel and Russia more difficult and endanger its efforts to revive the nuclear deal with Iran and to end the war in Syria. The U.S. may also worry that Israel's strikes could start a wider conflict in the region and harm its strategic and security interests. The U.S. may also want to keep its leadership and involvement in the Middle East peace process. That's not the only important issue that's brewing between Israel and Russia. Israel is widely thought to be the only nuclear-armed state in the Middle East, but it has never officially admitted or denied having nuclear weapons. 
It follows a policy of nuclear ambiguity, or opacity, which means that it does not confirm or deny its nuclear capabilities and keeps a low profile on nuclear issues. This policy is meant to deter potential enemies while avoiding international attention and pressure. However, this policy was recently challenged by a controversial statement made by Heritage Minister Amihai Eliyahu in a radio interview, suggesting that the nuclear option could be considered for dealing with Gaza. This implies not only Israel's possession of nuclear weapons, which the country has never officially confirmed, but also a readiness to use them. Gaza is a crowded coastal enclave. In response, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu suspended the minister from a far-right party in the coalition government and from cabinet meetings until further notice. Netanyahu also issued a statement reaffirming Israel's commitment to the policy of nuclear ambiguity and distancing himself from the minister's remarks. Netanyahu said that the minister's statement was irresponsible and unacceptable and that it did not reflect the position of the government or the people of Israel. Russia's foreign ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova pointed out the significant issue of Israel seemingly admitting to having nuclear weapons. She wondered why the International Atomic Energy Agency, also called the IAEA, and international nuclear inspectors did not react to this revelation. The IAEA is the UN's nuclear watchdog which checks and verifies the nuclear activities and obligations of its member states. Israel is not a party to the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, also called NPT, which aims to stop the spread of nuclear weapons and promote peaceful uses of nuclear energy. Therefore, Israel is not subject to the IAEA's safeguards and inspections and does not have to declare or report its nuclear facilities or activities. Zakharova said that this situation was a serious problem for regional and global security and called for more transparency and accountability from Israel. The Federation of American Scientists estimates that Israel has about 90 nuclear warheads, which can be delivered by aircraft, ballistic missiles, or submarines. Currently, Israel and Hamas have negotiated a truce, and Hamas has been releasing many of the hostages it took. However, nobody knows how long this truce will last. The जिन्होंने भी इस हमले को अंजाम दिया है उन्हें हम सागर तल से भी ढूंढ निकालेंगे और उनके खिलाफ कठोर कार्रवाई की जाएगी The Indian Defence Minister was responding to attacks on trade vessels plying on the Red Sea one of the world's busiest shipping routes India's maritime forces are braving through adversaries with their latest missile destroyers and reconnaissance assets to secure the region along with international players But which groups are behind these incessant attacks is India ready for a maritime conflict in the Red Sea? I'm Shivan Chandra. This is India's Red Sea game plan. Nearly 80% of maritime trade takes place through this route. It connects with the Arabian Sea, which India guards with its missile destroyers and warships. The Indian Navy has deployed its state-of-the-art maritime military assets to secure the region. Houthis, an Iran-backed militia based in Yemen, have taken responsibility for the recent attacks in the Red Sea. They were acting on a pledge to target all vessels travelling towards Israel until Israel stops its military operation on Gaza in the wake of the October 7th Hamas terror attack. 
Now, among the vessels that were attacked, some had Indian nationals on board as well. The US has accused Iran of being behind these attacks, a charge Tehran vehemently denies. When it comes to the Red Sea, Somali pirates are also known to hijack ships in the region. The Indian Navy has been safeguarding the region. It is among first responders to cases of hijackings and attacks. On December 16th, a Malta-flagged vessel, MV Ruin, with 18 crew was hijacked by Somali pirates. India was the first to respond to their Mayday message, leading to a Red Sea Protection Squadron. INS Kochi was diverted towards the hijacked vessel, rescuing an injured crew member from the ship. On December 24th, a Gabon-flagged commercial oil tanker named MV Sai Baba on its way to India with a crew of 25 Indians came under a Houthi drone attack in the Southern Red Sea. Just a day prior to that, MV Kem Pluto, an India-bound oil tanker ferrying crude oil from Saudi Arabia to Mangalore with 22 crew out of which 21 were Indians, was struck by a drone in the Arabian Sea about 200 kilometers southwest of Veraval, Gujarat coast. The Indian Navy directed one of its latest missile destroyers to secure the vessel and bring it to safety. India's military assets in the Arabian Sea, Indian Ocean and Red Sea are a force to reckon with. India has positioned its deadly indigenous guided missile destroyers in the conflict-hit region. INS Mormugao, the ship has enhanced stealth features and is equipped to fight under nuclear, biological and chemical warfare conditions. INS Kochi, which is one of the most potent surface combatants that have been constructed in India. The ship has a complement of 40 officers and 350 sailors. INS Kolkata, which is armed with an array of modern weapons and sensors which can address threats in all three dimensions. Regular sorties are also conducted in the region by India's P-8I, a long-range maritime reconnaissance aircraft. India's Western Naval Command's Maritime Operations Centre is also actively monitoring the Red Sea in close coordination with India's Coast Guard and all concerned agencies. India recently also launched the INS Imphal, which is equipped with the BrahMos missile, torpedo tube launchers with a rapid gun mount and medium-range missiles. It is aimed at boosting India's might to safeguard the Indian Ocean region. You see, India is clear on its course of action in the Red Sea. It will find those responsible and bring them to justice. India does not aim to be involved in a maritime conflict. But with its military might and naval assets, India is leaving no stone unturned in its deterrence efforts. India had provided intelligence, warning the world of increased maritime attacks expected in the Red Sea region. For now, India stands on guard and ready, but will not hesitate to fire if provoked. Luca, thanks for joining us. The U.S. Navy has destroyed several Iranian-backed militant ships that attacked a container ship in the Red Sea. They responded early this morning after getting a distress call from the container ship Maersk Hangzhou in the Red Sea. That according to the U.S. Central Command. U.S. Navy helicopters responded around 6.30 this morning after the ship sent out multiple distress calls within a 24-hour period. Navy helicopters responding to find four militant boats within 20 meters of that ship firing at and then attempting to board the vessel, who later turned fire on that responding aircraft. Navy crews fired, sinking three of those four small boats, killing their crews, 
the fourth boat fled the area, according to U.S. Central Command. No Americans or military equipment was damaged. Meanwhile, Maersk has paused all sailing through the Red Sea over the next 48 hours. The crew of the Maersk Hangzhou, well, they were safe and there was no indication on board of any type of fire on the ship. Uh, which was fully maneuverable, and they were able to continue its journey north to Port Suez. The attack was the latest by Houthi militants in Yemen, who have been targeting vessels in the Red Sea to show their support for Palestinian Islamist group Hamas, continuing to fight Israel in Gaza. Meanwhile, the Israeli military, well, they say they have claims that they found a horrifying find in a children's care area in Gaza on Sunday. Israeli soldiers claim they found an explosive device in a kindergarten located in the southern region of the Gaza Strip. Video showing Israel Defense Forces walking through the damaged and now empty kindergarten. The Israel-Hamas war is now going into its third month soon. This control of the coast using cruise missiles and ballistic missiles, that is potentially more difficult to deal with and really depends on the risk-reward calculus both for the Houthis in Yemen and more importantly for the, uh, the, because they are a proxy force of Iran, what is Iran's calculation within this? If you are going to take military action, uh, can we of course is yes we can, should we and must we must we uh, must we our uh, political actions can we as a is uh, our political actions can we as a military action and then the calculation is is this just a strike to try and uh, affect deterrence by punishment or are you going to have a longer campaign to destroy a significant portion of capability? The British military is drawing up plans with the US for potential airstrikes against Yemen's Houthi rebels following their attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea. Defence Secretary Grant Shapps has warned that if the Houthis continue to threaten lives and trade, the UK will not hesitate to take action. Joining me now is General Chip Chapman, a former senior British military advisor. Chip, happy new year and welcome to the show. Thank you, Jane. Chip, just give us a bit of context first. Can you explain first why the Houthis are attacking shipping in the Red Sea and I guess what they hope to gain by it? Well, the Houthis have always been part of the axis of resistance, mainly the Shia forces. It's from uh, Iran's perspective, it is part of the unity of fronts. And um, the uh, Houthis are part of this ring of fire. We've already seen, for example, exo-atmospheric interceptions of ballistic missiles by the Israelis, which were headed towards uh, Iliad. And um, part of the sort of grander strategic thing is to try and strangle the Israeli economy by um, stopping shipping, really. And the Red Sea, Gulf of Aden, Bab al-Mandeb, is one of the key shipping lanes to keep open. So the Houthis don't actually run um, Yemen. There's been a civil war there since 2014. Um, Saudi Arabia and the UAE intervened in 2015 in a thing called Operation Decisive Storm, which wasn't decisive and wasn't a storm. And the Houthis essentially control the area towards the coast. And what they're trying to do is what we call A2AD, AD, that is anti-access area denial, to stop the shipping coming down there, that will raise the costs, and that might provide leverage to try and get the Israelis to stop. They won't because they conceive this to be an existential threat to them. Mm. Chip, so you said obviously that it's a very, very important uh, shipping route. From what I understand, the Red Sea and the Suez Canal account for about 30% of the world's shipping, which is massive. So 
this is likely, if it if it goes on, to have a very big impact on international shipping, right? Well, they'll be rerouted. It's just the cost. You've got three thousand mile extra route to um, mm. to uh, to to go down. It will have more impact uh, potentially on Egypt as ten billion dollars worth of trade flows through the Suez Canal. They can't afford that because they've got a great great debt burden at the moment. Now they're partly in a sort of um, a, a negotiation with Qatar and US to try and get a ceasefire in the future. That might be a catalyst and leverage for them to try and get uh, um, uh, a ceasefire in the future. And also is leverage for them to p- potentially be one of the options to take over the governance of Gaza. I'm not saying that will happen, but it's certainly one of the options. Mm. Now, we've seen attacks on shipping in the past. I- I'm thinking of Somali pirates who would regularly target shipping maybe a decade ago, taking lots of hostages. Why is this situation different? Well, if you look at the attack yesterday, it's different for this this reason. Yesterday, we saw a small boat swarm on the um, Maersk Hangsu. A small boat swarm is the equivalent of what happened on the Somali coastline with the pirates taking ships for um, the hostage, essentially. That's easy to deal with, and I think that will already be deterred by the actions of the US Navy yesterday in destroying three of the four ships. The fourth ship actually going back, or skiff going back, is a good way for them to say, don't go out there, you're gonna get obliterated. Mm. That is completely different than this um, this control of the coast using cruise missiles and ballistic missiles. That is potentially more difficult to deal with and really depends on the risk-reward calculus both for the Houthis in Yemen and more importantly, for the, uh, the because they are a proxy force of Iran, what is Iran's calculation within this? If you are going to take military action, uh, can we, of course, is yes, we can. Should we and must we? Must we? Uh, must we? Our political actions. Can we? As a is uh, our political actions. Can we? As a military action. And then the calculation is: Is this just a strike to try and uh, affect deterrence by punishment, or are you going to have a longer campaign to destroy a significant proportion of capability? Now we don't know what the left and right of arc of that is. Now at the moment, the signalling from both the joint statement from the UK and US is telling that these to desist in targeting ships. You've got a trade-off here between what General Frank McKenzie, who was the previous CENTCOM commander, said, sometimes you've got to throw a pitch. You can't catch eternally because eventually you're going to take a significant escalatory event on a ship. So you can knock down most of the Houthi ballistic missiles and drones. If one got through and were, God forbid, to sink a Type 45 destroyer from the UK or a a U.S. ship that would get towards the point of being de- uh, determined to be an act of war. Mm. So there are there are problems in how you approach this in an escalatory framework. Right. So I mean, there is, as you're saying, this risk that targeting the Houthis missile launch sites might escalate the current crisis in the Middle East. But presumably, there are also enormous risks of not intervening here. Well, there are, because it's the message that you send to other malign actors, potentially the Chinese, uh, that you can close major trade routes. Now, you've got a tension between some of the vital interests here of both the UK and the US. So, of course, one of the vital interests is always to keep sea lanes open, but it's also to deter regional war. And Why keep the sea lanes open? Why he said, why keep the sea lanes open for them? Especially for them, for... um for um the caucasian man because where they where they live at they can't 
They can't survive. Survive on what their land provide for. They some of most of them had to go out in other areas to get stuff so they so they can be provide, provided for. That's one way. It's also to to avoid um, Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You've already got a conflict between those things already. The other one, which is in conflict here, is to prevent nuclear uh, nuclear proliferation. That is something that uh, Iran could also get involved in. And the calculus there, the risk-reward calculus I, I talked about, is even greater from either the responses of the U.S. or Israel or non-responses. You really want a non-response. Uh, but it's a, this again, this trade-off between can you deter them by words? Mm. Do you have to take military action? Now, it, it's worth saying that since Operation Prosperity Guardian started, which was about 10 days ago, 1,200 ships have had transit uh, through the area since that was announced. So at the moment, it's a sort of highway patrol safe pass passage. So I wouldn't read too much into the skip attacks yesterday it's whether some of those 1200 ships and those which follow in the future are targeted and some of those missiles get through uh, and to stop destroying those ships let's jump straight to the first question will there be a full-scale war in west asia in 2024 it is just day one of the new year and the signs are pointing at something dangerous iran's warship has entered the red sea we are looking at the possibility of the u.s and the uk joining the war in west asia I will start by telling you what happened over the weekend. The Houthi fighters came face to face with the US forces. It happened in the Red Sea. On Sunday, Houthi fighters attacked a Singapore-flagged commercial vessel. The Houthis were trying to board this ship. The security on board the vessel was trying to fight the Houthis. And that's when the US forces patrolling the Red Sea arrived on scene. These were helicopters from the USS Eisenhower carrier group. The Houthi fighters reportedly opened fire at the choppers. The American troops retaliated, the U.S. Central Command claims, and I quote, the U.S. Navy helicopters returned fire in self-defense, sinking three of the four small boats and killing the crews. The fourth boat fled the area. There was no damage to U.S. personnel or equipment. What about the Houthis? The Yemen-based group put out a statement. It said 10 of their fighters had died in the incident. Allow me to quote again. The American enemy bears the consequences of this crime. Its military movements in the Red Sea to protect Israeli ships won't prevent the Houthis from performing their religious, moral and humanitarian duty to support and aid of those who have been wronged in Palestine and Gaza. The war in Gaza has spilled into the Red Sea. And this is the new flashpoint, perhaps the most dangerous one this new year. What happened on Sunday was the first direct firefight between the US troops and the Houthis. So where do things go from here? Towards something more dangerous. Reports say Allied forces are preparing for an attack on the Houthis. The British and American troops are working on a plan. At least one more European country could be joining in. The British Defence Secretary, Grant Shapps, shared some details in his article in The Telegraph. He said, and I quote, The Houthis should be under no misunderstanding. We are committed to holding malign actors accountable for unlawful seizures and attacks. Reports say the UK and the US are expected to issue a verbal final warning to the Houthis. The statement obviously will ask for the Houthis to stand down in the Red Sea. So, this is a non-pigmentation man telling a pigmentation man what he needs to do and how he needs to do it. 
These the arrogance of the non-pigmentation man and the non-melanated man. These the these the mindset that they had. That's why the most high say they are their forefathers. Let's analyze. And this could come any time now. Chances are the attacks won't stop. Houthis have vowed to continue fighting alongside Hamas. So what's part two of the plan? Reports say the UK may send a warship. The HMS Lancaster to the Gulf region. This warship is equipped with a Sea Scepter missile system. It can fire three times the speed of sound and it is designed to protect an area of more than 800 square kilometers. The Sea Scepter can also attack fast-moving boats. You know the kind that the Houthi fighters are using. British media is reporting that the HMS Lancaster has been on standby to assist another British warship, the HMS Diamond in the Red Sea. Previously, the HMS Diamond did manage to shoot down a Houthi drone, but things seem to be getting out of hand now. What happened this Sunday was the 23rd instance of a Houthi attack on international ships in the Red Sea. The United States is losing its patience. The US is already leading a multinational naval task force in the Red Sea. We told you about it. I'm referring to Operation Prosperity Guardian. At least 20 countries are part of this force. Clearly, this alliance has not deterred the Houthis. So in the Pentagon, many top officials believe that a stronger military message must be sent to the Houthis. What kind of message? We are told there is a detailed plan in place. It involves striking missile and drone bases in Yemen. Also, facilities that house the small boats that Houthis are using for the Red Sea attacks. Senior and retired Pentagon officials want to re-establish American deterrence. They are citing the year 2016 and what happened then. That year, the Houthis fired on U.S. Navy and commercial ships in the Red Sea. The U.S. retaliated, struck three Houthi missile sites. The Houthis stopped attacking, but you know what? Things are different in 2024. An American attack or an allied attack will be an escalation, not a deterrence. And there is bound to be retaliation. The strike will, this concept of strike for a strike will leave West Asia burning. Who do you think supports the Houthis? Iran. What happens when Allied troops hit the Houthis? What happens when a salvo of Western missiles falls on Yemen? Will Iran sit back and watch? Iran's warship has already entered the Red Sea. My point here is clear. It is the 1st of January 2024 and you are staring at a full-blown war in West Asia. A war which will be fought on land, at sea and will engulf global shipping. Here's why you should care more. India has a commercial and security stake in the Red Sea. So what will this war mean for India? India has one of the world's strongest navies. The recent global naval powers ranking puts Indian Navy 7th from top. In fact, recently, India's Defence Minister Rajnath Singh vowed to avenge the attacks on India-linked vessel. I'm talking about the MV Kempluto and the MV Sai Baba. Rajnath Singh also emphasised India's position as a security provider. The spokesperson of India's External Affairs Ministry, Arindam Bakshi, added that India is monitoring the developments in the Red Sea. Beyond World as One is now available. Iran has sent a warship to the Red Sea as the important shipping route becomes increasingly militarized. On Sunday, the U.S. Navy destroyed three Houthi boats that attacked a merchant ship. Iranian-backed Houthis have vowed to attack vessels linked to Israel. Iran says its warship is there to secure shipping lanes.
Let's cross over to Rasul Sardar. He joins us now from Djibouti. So how much of a game changer is this, Rasul? Well, Iranian warships regularly, they operate in the area. So they say that they are sending their warships to secure the safety of the, the, the shipping vessels and oil tankers. So it's not the first time that Iran is sending a warship to the Red Sea. What however, what matters here is the timing. So this is coming right one day after the USA has killed 10 Houthi members in the region. And right after that, we have seen that the deputy foreign minister of Houthi government in Yemen saying that the blood of Yemenis is not wasted and the prizes, the prize for that is, is high. Another Houthi spokesperson said that the US bears full responsibility and the consequences. So on the top of that, um, the, 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 the defense secretary of the UK in a newspaper article said that the UK is ready to take further direct actions against the Houthis. Now we see that this threat language is dominating the, the situation here. So far, uh, the, 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 the conflict, the escalation in the Red Sea remained as a local one, despite it caused a huge disruption in maritime business here. However, that has changed after the USA killed 10 members of the, the, the of, of, of Houthis. And so far also, we have seen that the USA remained in a defensive position, but now we've seen UK and the USA are also sending more and more warships here. And there are growing concerns that if Houthis retaliate, the USA could directly hit Houthi uh, positions in Yemen, which could trigger a wider, uh, wider war in the region. Scenes like this are becoming increasingly frequent in the port of Djibouti. This U.S. missile-guided destroyer is refueling before embarking on its next mission in the Red Sea. It's here with the other U.S. naval vessels to counter Houthi attacks on commercial ships that have brought the maritime traffic here to a near standstill. We've seen the decrease in what we've been monitoring, uh, anywhere between 30 to about 40 percent of what the normal ship traffic is. Houthi attacks in the region have forced some of the world's largest shipping companies to suspend operations in the Red Sea. They have rerouted ships around the southern tip of Africa. 8.8 million of barrels of oil are passing through the Red Sea every month. So imagine how they're going to go. They have to go all the way around Africa and the price are increasing. And who's, 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 who's going to pay for that prices? You know, the, the end people. The customer is going to pay uh, the prices. The U.S. has formed a multinational task force to deter Houthis from attacking commercial ships and to keep sea lanes open. But many countries that agreed to contribute to the task force didn't send warships. Houthi attacks are intensifying and the effectiveness of the coalition is being questioned. There's still a lot of unknown questions for the coalition. Um, what their rules of engagement are, how many vessels are going to be a part of this, um, and how the whole entire coalition, coalition is going to work. Houthis say they are not aiming to block the strait, but only attacking ships linked to Israel. The region is now increasingly militarized. And we are afraid that this conflict will take uh, we take over some other countries. Dozens of cargo ships are stranded at the port of Djibouti for days. Many don't know when they will get security clearance to enter the Red Sea. 
This is the Bab al-Mandab Strait, which separates the Arabian Peninsula from East Africa and connects the Gulf of Aden to the Red Sea. Yemen is just 29 kilometers from here. About 12% of global trade passes through this strait and almost a third of all international container traffic. Now, the U.S. is increasing its naval presence here and on the other side of the strait. The Houthis say they will continue attacking vessels linked to Israel until the killing in Gaza stops. I study the Bible so I know it well. Yeah, can't let nobody make myself a cell. Can't even lie, yeah, I still struggle, but I know myself. I fear God, I told him I don't want to go to hell. Pray for the sermon, I'll be asking what's the gift in me. Must be this music, cause the world think I'm so sick with it. I switch my style, some people love it, some trying to get with it. I think what matters most is I'm living out what's God written. I make mistakes, but I embrace them, I'm still human. I'm still human. I escape from that place that made me feel ruined. So every day I still chase what I think I'm losing. And pray to God in the end that I don't look stupid. Why do I feel I'm unable, double-minded, I'm unstable? Wanna put all me on the table so God can make me an angel. Was living life like Cain, cause I was jealous of Abel. God told me, look up, child, I just wanna save you. I need to hear your voice in life so I could get through this. For you, I shoot for the stars every time and I don't miss. Every time I drop a hit, I still don't feel the bliss. And deep down, I know it's only cause I'm still living in sin. You transform my pen, they laughed at me, now I'm laughing with them. Transform my gifts so now I can't even rap with them. I need to use my talents cause the devil be distracting them.